I'm going to ask you a question, and you don't want to answer it out loud. That's the first trick. Whenever a pastor asks a question, don't answer. If someone were to ask you, what do you think God is like? What would you say? Now, the reason I told you not to answer is because how you answer is going to tell me a lot about what you think about God and what you think about the second commandment, which is what we will be looking at today. You see, if you answer that question with, I think that God is, don't ever trust something like that. But if your answer is, I know that God is because, now we're on to something. The second commandment will be in Exodus 20, deals in large part with something the Lord has entrusted to us called our imagination or our mind. And in the flesh, we like to create a God. And even as believers, we tend to create a distortion of God based off of our imagination by saying things like this. Well, I think that God is a God of love. But I don't think that God is a God of wrath or anger. Well, that's great that that's what you think, but what has God said? There's a difference between the I think and the God says. And it's very subtle, and it's very important. And what we're going to drill into today is this question. Does truth shape your imagination, or does your imagination shape truth? You following that? Does the truth shape what you think, or what does you think shape what you want the truth to be? In case you've been living in a cave and haven't been engaged with any person in the world for the past 20 years, we live in a world where truth is created. You have your truth, I have my truth, and the only problem is when my truth says that your truth is a lie, who's right? See, there is something called absolute truth. The question is, where does it come from and what creates it? Exodus 20. Last week, we looked at the first commandment. The first commandment had to do with who we are to worship. Remember, you are to have no other gods before me. And we spoke of how before wasn't in an order of importance, it was in the presence of. Well, the second commandment deals with how we are to worship. So number one was who, number two is how. And we'll look at the text and we'll begin to unpack it. I'm in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 through 6. The word of the Lord reads, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water around the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So you shall have no, I'm sorry, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Let's be quick. Anyone have a carved image in their house? No? Let's just wrap up and get out of here. We're in good shape, right? There's got to be more to it than just that, isn't there? Well, watch this. It's very important to understand. Carved image means something made by human hands. If you back that up a little bit, you make something that you come up with in your mind, by your imagination. This is not just a command to not create a carved or in the King James graven image, right? 
This deals with the mind, the thought, the imagination as well. Image, imagination. You notice they're the same word we're dealing with there. And what you will see here is, don't come up with an imaginary God or distorted view of God. Well, what's the big deal? What, what, really, what's the big deal? If we know who we're worshiping, if we have no other gods before God, what does it really matter how we worship? Well, the reason it matters is because God will not share his glory, and to worship God the wrong way will bring pain to his people. I'll explain that to you as we go through this, that all the areas in which we struggle with sin, areas of anxiety, for example, are a result of a breaking of the second commandment. So watch where we go here. Remember in Exodus 30, Moses was up on the mountain receiving the law. He was gone for just under 40 days at the time this incident began to happen. And the Israelites had a little problem. They put a little too much emphasis on Moses. They refer to him as the guy who brought them out of Egypt. They they were not giving full glory to God, but then they, they called Aaron and said, Hey, why don't you make us a golden calf so we can worship the golden calf? And according to Aaron, their jewelry just kind of fell into the fire and came out like a golden calf, if you remember. And they offered to the golden calf the offerings and sacrifices that were due to Yahweh, God himself. We can read that and you think, well, what, what is going on? But what happened is really not as outlandish as you think it was outlandish, but we have similarities. And here's what was going on. The Israelites grew up in Egypt. And they were in a, a polytheistic culture, all these different gods. And one of the most powerful gods in Egypt was represented by a golden calf. It was a power god, a god of, of ferocious strength. And what the Israelites wanted to do was worship Yahweh and praise him for his strength. So while they drifted, they fell into a bit of idolatry and they began to break the second commandment by worshiping something, a carved image, calling it God and giving the offerings of worship to this carved image that were due only to God. It was a big deal in case you don't remember how the rest of the story played out. Well, what if we tone it down a little bit? The Sistine Chapel. There's a painting up there and the name of the painting is The Creation of Adam. You know, it's got naked God and naked Adam, and and God's sticking his finger out, and Adam's sticking his finger up. You guys have seen the picture, I'm sure, yes? Do you know it's actually a breach of the second commandment? Did you know that? Say, well, wait, what's the big deal? That's a beautiful piece of artwork, but watch what happens. When you look at that picture, Scripture tells us that God is invisible. Well, God was just made visible. And what does God look a whole lot like in that picture? Like a person, like an old person. Now he's muscle-bound too, like that makes up for it. Notice, where does God live? Everywhere. In the picture, what do you see in God? He's isolated to a place. How did God make Adam? He had to exert effort. Scripture, how did he make? He spoke. Do you see, what happens is, in this picture, you see a visual representation of God, which limits and distorts the reality of who God is. How about the pictures you see of Jesus? You ever walk into a Catholic church and you see a crucifix? Jesus with his head hung and he's very frail and beaten, right? That's a problem. There's a reason you don't see a crucifix in a, I would say a Protestant church, but what a, what a vague term today. There's a reason you shouldn't see a crucifix in a church, because we shouldn't be making a visual representation of Christ, 
Now, here's an interesting thing. What about the pictures you see in church history? You ever see the, the pictures of the, the long-haired, rather frail man who stands with his finger like this, with just this... I read a story this week of this, this kid who grew up in, in a rough part of town, let's say. And he came to faith as an adult, and he said... Now, I understand there's more theologically to the story, but bear with me. He said that the reason he would not become a Christian growing up because he saw these pictures of Jesus, and Jesus wouldn't have made it a day in his neighborhood. You see what happens in those pictures? Jesus looks kind of wimpy. Now, he was a meek man. It wasn't a wimp. Big difference. But what about the Jesus who came into the temple and flipped the stuff and made a whip and ran people out? What about the Jesus who confronted the false teachers and called them whitewashed tombs? What about the Jesus in the garden when they came to arrest him, said, I am he, and boom, they fell down. You see, he'd make it a day in the ghetto. The problem is, even in our minds, our mental images, we start to think, well, I think God is like a loving grandfather. And we start to think of him as an a improved version of the best grandfather we could think of. Or, God is like my really bad dad. I say that not, you know, my dad's listening, it's not him, right? We make a distorted image, and what we do is we limit, we localize, and the reality is any visual representation of God will conceal more than it will reveal, and it will hijack your imagination from worshiping the true God to a distorted version of God. You see what's going on here? So as we unpack this a little bit, watch this. Why does God give us this commandment? Well, it says he's jealous, and we know what jealous means. Saying, I don't want to share it with anybody. Stop it. Why do we sometimes think God would even speak like that? God gives us this commandment because God has revealed to us who he is, and he made us to know him, to love him, and to worship him so we might live life abundantly, and to worship anything other than God as God has revealed himself to be will rob you of joy and lead to much pain. You see, we are, as Christians, recovering sin addicts. And as recovering sin addicts, we want, maybe it's just me, we want a God we can control. Don't you kind of want that? We don't want God giving us commandments. We want God making requests. And we might go ahead and acquiesce to if it's convenient to us. Kind of like God said, consultants, right? God says, you shall have no other gods before me. We say, well, God, you know, there's many of gods out there that we can find benefit from. So we'll bring a couple and you can just deal with it. And God says, okay, that works. Now, God doesn't say that. But as recovering sin addicts, I'm talking to Christian people here, we still fall into this trap that we want to create a God we can control or at least give him our advice to. We want a God who won't infringe upon our hopes and dreams and plans. We want a God that we can tell what to do as opposed to who tells us what to do. There's the appeal of the prosperity gospel. If you do A, B, and C, God must do you know, E, F, and G. Well, guess who's serving who there? God, I did this. Your turn. We're manipulating God. Mm. God tells us in the second command, he's not a God we can control. He's God. He's not a tame or safe God. He's God. That he cannot be put in a box. He's God. And in our worship, we need to understand that God is God and to be worshipped as he says. And to do anything outside of worshipping the one true God will rob you of your desires. And he loves you so much, he doesn't want you to be robbed of them. Remember back to where we started. The Ten Commandments are not God saying, do this, 
so you can be right with me and then keep doing it so you don't go to hell. That's not at all what the Ten Commandments are. The Ten Commandments were given to a people who were taken out of Egypt. To the non-believer, the Ten Commandments say, do this, and the Holy Spirit will convict you. You can't. And then you fall before God and say, what now? And God says, you have sinned. The wages of sin is death. That's what now. But God shows his love for us in what? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Guess who kept the Ten Commandments, my friends? Jesus. Guess who can't? You. And the only way for you to be considered right with God is that the work of Christ might be placed upon you and your sin might be placed upon him. And that's why Jesus came to die. He's not a good teacher. He's not an example to follow. He's a savior. So when you get to the second commandment, you don't read it as, you will worship me as I say, or you will go to hell. No. God says, now that you have been saved... I want you to live, and so that you might live, you shall worship me as I say. You shall not make a carved image of me that looks like anything. Why? Because it limits, and it robs, and it distorts, and it destroys. And you will never have the joy of fellowship with me, says God, if you worship me the wrong way. Do you see that there? It's not God coming down authoritarian and saying, you idiot, do it. No, he's saying, I want you to live. I want you to know me for who I am. I want you to have joy. But this is the only way to have joy. So here's what happens. We can view this commandment, should view it two ways, negative. The negative sense is a commandment keeps us from everything, every wrong thought about God. You got that? Keeps us from every wrong thought about God. In the positive sense... The commandment fills our souls with the knowledge of God through his word. Now, get to the uncomfortable and then the wonderful part of this. Verse 5. You shall not bow, bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. All right, first of all, what does it mean that God's a jealous God? Anyone here ever, ever been jealous? Yeah, you, you know when, like, you're a kid... And your neighbor gets a cool toy, you like gets the electric scooter where you ride on it. He's tearing around the neighborhood. And you got the little foot push one. You're like, oh man, this thing, I'm sweating. I can't keep on He's like on the fifth lap and you're just coming around the corner. Well, then you start to get jealous. You start to say, I wish I had that scooter. Why don't I have that scooter? My parents don't love me. They didn't buy me that scooter. I want that scooter. You get into coveting and envy and all sorts of trouble. Well, when God's jealous... I hate to break it to you. That's not what God's doing. You see, envy or a desire to have something that you can't have is what we have as human jealousy usually. But there's a other part of jealousy, which is what God has. And that jealousy deals with the fact that sometimes things belong to you and should be protected. Now, I have a wife. If my wife tells me at 5 in the evening, I want to let you know I'm going out to dinner with so-and-so on a date. I'll be home sometime after 10. No. You know why? It's my wife. It's not a matter of insecurity. It's a matter of I have a covenantal relationship with this woman as my wife, and it's a relationship that is not to be shared with other people. She's mine. You can't have her. Well, put it in a fully sanctified sense, and God made us to live in a relationship with him, To he alone is due glory and praise and worship. And guess what God says? 
I ain't sharing my worship with nothing because I'm God. In fact, it's an intensely caring devotion to the object of his love. I'll say that again. But the jealousy of God is an intensely caring devotion to the objects of his love. What are the objects of his love? His people. We could say all people, right? All people are loved by God. Some people are loved by God in all ways. You can untie that for a minute if you like. God loves all people. Some people are in a unique relationship with God by the work of Christ and loved in all ways. And God is saying that he's intensely, intensely desirous of living in a love relationship with his people. And that's what it means by jealousy. Now watch this. What's this deal with the iniquities of fathers on children? That kind of sounds like if the fathers walk in sin, their kids suffer, doesn't it? Do I misread that there? Somebody want to preach this part? It gets a little uncomfortable. It says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Well, now, now that's not fair, right? Who, who does God think that he is, that he's going to visit the iniquities of fathers on kids? Now, you notice the problem with that statement, for me to tell God something's not fair? Who determines what's right? You see, God, by who he is, could simply just come down to earth and stomp out everybody. You know that? In fact, that's what he should do if, if he wanted to be fair. But what needs to be understood here is put the warning with the promise, put it in the context of Scripture and unpack it. What does that mean? I don't know. It means if you look at Ezekiel 18, and in verse 20 it says, The soul who sins shall die. The son, watch this, shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Now what is that? Here's what it's saying. In a covenantal community which the family is a covenantal community. Listen close. The church is a covenantal community. The consequences of the actions of one in the covenantal community impact others in the covenantal community at times for multiple generations. That's some serious business. What does that mean in layman's terms? Your sin affects other people besides you, and it can run for a long, long time. In the setting of a family, a physical family... The Lord saying, fathers, if you worship me falsely, your sin will be visited upon your kids, your grandkids, and your great-grandkids. Now, now in a family structure, that, that should shake the legs of a lot of dads. Because if you worship God falsely, it's a lot of responsibility, isn't it? If you worship God falsely, you can mess up several generations. Take a walk around our country. You want to see what it looks like? It's also saying, for example, you can look throughout Scripture. You'll see examples of this in this covenant relationship. You have Ahab in 1 Kings, I think it's 10. It'll show up, but it's got to be 1 Kings 10. He had 70 kids that were killed because of his idolatry. Remember good old Achan and I and Jericho? You, know, you have covenantal relationships where the sin of one affect many. The church, this isn't a one-man show. We don't function independently. If we allow the church to creep 
and become what it is not and to worship anything in front of God other than God himself or to worship God falsely, we're all suffering together. That's serious business. But look at what happens here because after the warning, there's this incredible promise. It says, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me, to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Thousands is referring to generations. You want to know what happens with God? The blessing is always far superior than the curse. How many generations suffer for the sin? Three to four. How many are blessed for obedience? Thousands. Do you see that? And what God delights in doing is, at times, calling people out of idolatry into a fullness of relationship with Him. Remember Abram? Abram lived in a land of idolatry, and God called Abram. Go from your country, where? To the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, right? Why did God choose Abram? He just chose him. What did he choose him for? To come out of idolatry, to know God, and to worship God. Well, God delights in doing that for us. Maybe you're a lost person today, and the Lord is calling you out of a land of captivity to sin, to know him, and serve him. Maybe you're a saved person who struggles with degrees of idolatry or breaching of the second commandment, false worship, and the Lord calls you out of it to serve Him and to know Him and have the joy that comes in that. Do you see this? The blessing always goes beyond the curse or the warning. So what do we do? you got a whole bunch of information. What's the solution? You know, you have no other gods before Him. Don't make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything, right? What's well, great? How do you do it? How about this? Ready? Go New Testament, Colossians. Turn your Bibles to Colossians 1. Colossians 1.15. Here's a specific reason that you are not to make an image of God. You ready? Colossians 1.15, it says, He, speaking of Jesus, He is the, you see that word there? Image. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Do you know why we may not create an image of God? Because God created an image of himself. Did you catch that? What is the image of himself? It is Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. So do you want to know what God looks like? Do you know want to walk? Do you want to know what God acts like? Do you want to know what God wants? Well, you have it all throughout the Old Testament, and then the outline gets colored in in full beauty in Colossians 1.15, and through the Gospels you read, don't make an image of God, because the image of God is Jesus. God became flesh. So rather than go to the Sistine Chapel to see what God is like, go to Scripture. Go to the Gospels. Rather than use your imagination and say, I think that God, go to Scripture and hear God say, I am. Do you see that? There's no need for our hands to form a God when in reality, God himself took on our form and hands. Do you see this? It's beautiful. We don't create an image because Jesus is the image. 
So how do we fix this issue? Well, watch, watch what happens. God could just say, this is who I am and submit to it or die. If I was God, I think we'd live that way. It would be miserable for all of us. God says, this is who I am, submit or die. Actually, I'll die for you so that you might not. Then he says, now that you're not spiritually dead, now that you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, now that you are forgiven by me, now that you are made a child of mine, live like you were meant to live. You know me because I've revealed myself to you. Now let's walk in obedience to me so we might have fellowship with one another. God is so gracious that he became one of us, not just to redeem us, but to show us in greater fullness who he is. So who here goes through life struggling with anything? I'll give you a couple examples. Greed, anxiety, patience, anger, idolatry, pride, people-pleasing, identity issues. That's just what I've struggled with this morning. Don't we all struggle with these things? Do you know why? We break the second commandment. How? Anxiety. Watch this. If you are anxious, it means that you worship a God who is not perfectly wise and powerful and all-knowing. You know that? If you're scared of anything as a child of God, you are making an image of God that is not who he is. Why? God says, look at the birds. They're doing okay. You're going to be fine. Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Right? The Lord commands us, be anxious for nothing. But by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. To be anxious requires creating a false image of God, doesn't it? He says, I'll care for you perfectly. You tell him, well, you can't. Because if you believed it, you wouldn't be anxious. How about this? Anger, impatience. Always praying for patience and focus over here. You know, be careful with that. What happens there is we create a God who is less than sovereign. See, when I wake up in the morning, I have a plan. I have a to-do list. And if the Lord doesn't submit to my to-do list, I get frustrated. You see the problem there? You see there's a worship issue going on here. So when he doesn't submit to what I want him to do, I get angry. But what I fail to do is submit to his sovereignty and say, not my will, but yours be done. You see, so if my plan is to get in the car and go to the gym, but I come out to the car and I have two flat tires, I have to trust that providentially the Lord knows what he's doing, as opposed to get angry because I'm creating an inferior version of the God who is. You with me there? How about temptation to sin? I read the story of this this man who had a mistress. And his wife would go away on the weekends and his mistress would come and visit him on the weekends. And before she arrived, he'd take every picture of his wife and put it down, face down. Do you know why? He had to convince himself that his wife was less than what she was so he could sin against her. Well, my friends, here's what we do when we sin. We take God and we cover up certain aspects of him. Because if we didn't, if we didn't worship the false God of our image, or let me rephrase that, if we didn't falsely worship God, we would not be able to sin. You see, it's very hard to sin if you gaze upon the cross and you think of what the Lord did upon the cross. And perhaps you might hear him say to you, are you really going to do that? Are you going to beat me too? 
Are you going to drive another nail into my arm? Haven't I done enough for you? You're going to sin and slap me in the face again? Even though I love you so much, even though I've done this for you, really? Do you see, when you see what the true Lord has done, it becomes very hard to sin knowing why he has done that. So God calls us to lift up all the pictures of the attributes of who he is. He is loving. He is holy. He is just. He is jealous. He is sovereign. Do you see what happens here? And little by little, we see him for who he is. We worship him as he commands. And the gift of that worship is we no longer struggle as we once did with sin. Would anyone like to have a life free of anxiety? That's what God made you for. Would anyone like to be able to rejoice always? That's what God made you for. Would anyone like to have confidence to go out into the world knowing that he is well pleased with you so you need not care what other people think? That's what God made you for. But what we do is we distort who God is and we worship a graven image. Do you see that? God is marvelous. You notice what goes on there. God doesn't say, remember Peter says to Jesus, how many times I got to forgive these cats who are messing with me? Seven? And he's like, yeah, man, us Jewish folks, seven's a perfect number. I'll forgive them seven times. And Jesus says what? Seventy times seven. You know what he's saying? Don't go legalist there. That doesn't mean 49. That means forever. As a child of God, do you understand how incredible it is? I guarantee you, That you've broken the second commandment today. I guarantee it. And I guarantee you've done it thousands and thousands of times since you've come to faith. And do you know how many times God forgives you for that? It's forgiven in Christ. But if you're truly in Christ, you're going to be convicted of that sin and little by little empowered by God to not be stuck in that sin forever. Your relationship with God is not conditional upon how well you keep his commandments. It's conditional upon how much, how perfectly Christ kept them. And the more fully you understand that, the more you can't help but keep them. Why would you want to worship anything other than the one true God unless you desire to live a life riddled with anxiety, fear, and insecurity? So here's what you take from this. There is an aspect to try harder. But, you know, fight the good fight. Put on the armor of God. But these commandments aren't simply a pep talk to, now go get them, tiger! No. I want you to do something different. I want you to remember better and walk in fullness of truth. Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 9. This was one of the first memory verses we did in a... What was that? 2010, Route 119? That's where Route 119 comes from. Get it? 119, Psalm 119. Aren't I so clever? But verse 9, it says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. He says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Do you know why God calls us to store up his word in our heart? So we might know him for who he is and give him pure worship, give him true worship, worship him as who he is. If you want to keep the second commandment, God says, let me sanctify your imagination. Do you know imagination isn't bad? 
It's okay to imagine what it must be like to be with God in the new heavens and the new earth. It's okay to imagine how horrible it must have been for Christ when the Father turned from him completely. But the imagination must be sanctified by the truth. Second thing we need to do is we need to gaze upon the image of God. How do you do that? Immerse yourself in Scripture. In particular, immerse yourself in the Gospels. Do you see how God has so graciously given us four accounts, inspired accounts of the life of our Savior? You want to know what it would be like to walk alongside him? Read the Gospels. You want to know what Jesus would say or do or think? All right, read the Gospels. Saturate your mind. Allow the living word of God to, to transform you from the inside out so that you might see God for who he is. And as we do, as we worship God as he commands us to, we will come to see that this life he calls us to is wonderful and abundant and joyful, not just after you die, but right this very moment. So when I read the second commandment, I hear in a sense God saying something like this. Stop trying to make me in your image and allow me to make you into my image so we can enjoy the fullness of life together. Do you see that? You shall have no other gods before me, the who, and then the how. You shall worship me for who I am. No carved images or likeness made by the hand or in the mind. There is no reason to worship anything other than the one true God, because it is in that that we will have life and have it abundantly. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the fact that you love us as you do. I am certain that our, our minds cannot remotely fathom even a, an iota of what that truly means. Lord Jesus, the fact that you would become one of us, that you would come and dwell in a land of sin and corruption and death, that you, in fact, would die in our place is incomprehensible. We have absolutely nothing to offer you on our own but our sin, yet you delighted in choosing to take our sin upon yourself so that we might live. You chose us to have eternity with you. And I pray, Lord, that we would dwell upon that often, that we would dwell upon how marvelous and awesome and incredible and loving and gracious you are but yet never forget the wrath and holiness and justice that was carried out upon the cross as well. Holy Spirit, please help us. Forgive us for our sin. Forgive us for the frequency with which we break your commandments. And guide us, encourage us, empower us to give you our full and true worship, not based on what we think, but based on what you say. Allow us to worship you in all ways according to your word, not our preferences. Allow us to be inconvenienced in our flesh so we might walk in fullness of obedience to you so that you might be glorified and we might have the joy you desire for us. I thank you, Lord God, that you are not a God created by us, but you are the creator God who made all things. And Lord Jesus, by you, through whom all things were created, you have also made a way of salvation. Lord Jesus, we thank you, we adore you, we praise you. We recognize how incredibly short we fall on our own. We recognize how pathetic at times we walk as believers. 
But we thank you, Lord God, that you don't judge us by our work, but by the completed work of Christ. And in such a state, I pray that we would be prepared for every good work you have for us, Lord God, and take very serious the charge you've entrusted to us to go out into the world, to make disciples, to represent you well, and to proclaim your truth, so that many, many more people might know you, and know of the love that you have for them, and the abundance of life that comes through you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.